we have a really special thing that's happening this morning, and I'm really glad to be the one that gets to tell you about it. Um, so uh, we have, a, a, in, at Northridge Life, one of the values that we've had for years is uh, locating uh, young men who want to serve God in ministry and just doing whatever we can to help them to be, be prepared and have opportunities to serve here and um, do that. And uh, about, uh, and so we're going to hear from somebody like that this morning. About a year ago, I'm sitting right over there about where Jared and Hope are sitting. I saw a young couple with a young child and went over and introduced themselves and, and uh, introduced my, myself to them and, and uh, uh, found out that it was Gabriel and Natalie Castro and uh, just uh, really just immediately liked them. And, and so uh, found out a little bit about their background, which was interesting because it was almost identical to mine and Ginger's background uh, from the church they grew up in and things like that. And uh, so we, that kind of gave us an inroad to build a friendship. And so I just began having coffee with, with Gabe and uh, you know, finding out a little bit more and found out that he really had a, a burden uh, to be in ministry, a calling, if you want to call it that. And, um, and so we were really glad to hear that. And um, uh, some opportunities came up, and he was able to begin serving with our youth. And I will tell you, I don't think our, our youth has ever been in a better condition as far as the, the type of ministry that they're getting. They're hearing the gospel. They're getting um, some deeply rooted teaching. And Gabe is very serious about preparation. It's not just a bunch of silly games and, and you know, uh, uh, trips to Six Flags and things like that. They have fun, believe it, but, uh, but he's really serious about the gospel. But his, his desire is to just um, uh, give his life serving God in ministry. And so uh, the elders and I talked uh, about this and seeing the maturity that he's displaying and, the, and the, uh, the, both the life maturity and theological maturity. And we thought, man, we need to give this guy an opportunity to speak to you. And so we told him a few months ago, and he's been... Uh, preparing a message, and um, I've got to hear a little bit of a preview with it, so I have no doubt um, whatsoever that you are going to be blessed. And so if you would rise with me, I'm going to read the text for his message, and then we're going to invite Gabe to come and uh, share that with you. We're going to be reading um, in um, Revelation chapter 5, and I think that's page 596. Yeah, 596 in the blue Bibles that are in front of you in the chairs. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have the Word of God in your home, and so just take that as a gift. Um, and we're going to be on 596 in those Bibles, uh, Revelation chapter 5 um, in the others, and this is what the Word of God says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with him and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Thus says the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Um, I came well prepared this morning. I have my Bible. And just in case my laptop failed, I had a printed copy just so nothing went wrong. So, but uh, it's good to see all of you this morning and see your wonderful faces. It's been an honor and a blessing to be able to sit and talk with Pastor and uh, really just have him help mentor me and in uh, in the word as uh, I prepared this message and so I believe this will be good if not you can blame him because he oversaw it so so before I get into the text I'd like to share with you a little bit how about how I decided uh, to teach on this passage of scripture this morning uh, I believe it was our second or third Sunday here at Northridge and I when I first heard that beautiful song we sang this morning, Is He Worthy? I can even remember hearing this song for the first time and tears began to run down my face as the deep truths of this song hit me to my core and I was overwhelmed by the love of Christ. For months, for the months that followed, my mind was consumed with what this song is singing about. Where the song is singing, Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah These words and what they mean began to place deep conviction in my heart over the next several months. And as we attended this church and Pastor Mark would labor tirelessly to help me set a firm foundation on the truth of Scripture and proper doctrine, I felt like for the first time I really understood what John was talking about here in Revelation chapter 5. So this sermon, in essence, is essentially what God has been working in my heart for the, about the last year as we have been attending Northridge. I hope to share with you this morning what God has done in my heart, <clears throat> believing that there are some, if not many, here this morning who would be just as blessed as I was to learn and to meditate on the Word of God in Revelation chapter 5. So as we dive into the meat of this passage this morning, it is important that we get a clear understanding of the context. As we all know, application and communication of a passage of Scripture may vary, but the meaning and purpose of the passage may not. This saying is not my own, but it remains true. Scripture can never tell us something different today than what it was telling them then. If we don't understand this, then Scripture becomes subjective to our own preferences and life experiences instead of remaining subjective to God's authority and purposes for His church. So as you may already know from when Pastor Mark and Pastor David did a series on the letters to the churches a few weeks ago, we have John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day 
while he is on the island of Patmos. We know that from Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John was placed on the island of Patmos for his testimony of Jesus. While John is in the spirit, he hears the Son of God behind him. We know this is Christ because what he says about himself in chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. For fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Then Christ instructs John on what he is to do uh, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So let us start this morning by purging our imaginations and waking up our brain a little bit. Imagine you are praying alone in your prayer closet, and all of a sudden you hear a loud, thunderous voice behind you saying, Write what you are about to see and send it to the seven churches. Well, I don't know about you, but that would terrify me. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have had one of those experiences when you are dreaming so lucidly that as the dream starts to escalate in intensity, you begin to freak out and find yourself yanked out of your own sleep, sweating and breathing heavy, and I could imagine the uh, intensity of uh, John's vision was far more than any dream experiences we've ever had. Matthew Henry puts it this way, to prepare for this vision, the apostle was in the spirit. He was in a rapture. His spirit was possessed with the spirit of prophecy and holy under divine influence. When Matthew Henry says rapture here, he is Here what he means is John was overwhelmed with a great joyous emotion as his spirit was in awe and and captivated by what he was seeing. I highly doubt this was something John intended to set out to do. He was more likely in the spirit of prayer when the divine possession of prophecy is thrust upon him. It would be as if you, it would be as if someone blindfolded you and then placed you on a roller coaster and all of a sudden in the middle of the first drop of the roller coaster, the blindfold comes off and you realize you are descending to the ground at 120 miles an hour. I would imagine John's shock and surprise of such an intense vision would be far more than ours on that roller coaster. I can not even begin to understand the feeling of awe that John had in the manifest presence of our Lord and Jesus, ours are, is in our Lord Jesus Christ. So John, wholly possessed by this divine influence of prophecy, was overcome by fear to the point of falling on his face at the feet of Christ. Our Lord then comforts John and gives him the command to write what he is about to see. Christ then tells John what he is to write to the seven churches of, churches of Asia. We read about this in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If you are curious as to what that is all about, I encourage you to go to to the Northridge website. There you can find great uh, messages by Pastor Mark and Pastor David on what Christ said to the churches in those chapters. But for time's sake, we'll press on. After our Lord Jesus finishes talking about the churches, almost immediately John looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven. Then Jesus Christ says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now John in the spirit is seeing the things in heaven according to the will of God. Now I cannot get into too much detail here on everything John sees in Revelation chapter 4 or else this message would quickly become a 77 series, uh, 77 week series. But I will do my best to give you the idea 
of what, to give you an idea of what John is seeing as it pertains to our passage this morning. In Revelation chapter 4, we see God sitting on his throne. John describes what he sees while looking at the throne as seeing as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian and surrounded by an emerald rainbow. I like, the, I like what Matthew Henry says about John's description here. He says, He is not described by any human features as to be represented by an image, but only by his transcendent brightness. God is beyond what we can comprehend and even farther beyond what we can explain. We see before the throne a sea of crystal, We see 24 elders in their 24 thrones seated around the throne of God. The elders are clothed in white with uh, golden crowns on their heads. Then we see see these four uh, angelic beings before the throne of God. One having the face of a lion, another having the face of an ox, another having the face of a man, and the other like an eagle in flight. And they are all covered in eyes. And all, are, all around and have six wings. These four angelic beings give praise to God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The 24 elders fall down before God and cast their crowns before him saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you they exist and were created. So we have this magnificent scene in heaven of our, indescribable, uh, of our indescribable God and these amazing angelic beings and these elders and these crowns and thrones all falling before God in worship. What a humbling scene. Could you imagine the mind of, of John as he is witnessing all of this? I could imagine John was thinking, man, our worship at First Apostolic Church of Rome has got nothing on this. But seeing all this, God on his throne in unapproachable light, all of heaven worshiping God, praising him, giving him glory, honor, and power, this magnificent sight given to us in Revelation chapter 4 only sets the scene for what is about to unfold in chapter 5. Now finally, arriving here at chapter 5, John stands there, completely perplexed by what he is witnessing in this heavenly place, I can only imagine that if it were possible for a human jaw to drop all the way to the floor in amazement, John would have done so right here. As he gazes in awe at this magnificent image, he now sees a scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. The scroll was written on within, on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. It is easy when reading this passage to quickly glance past this part, as we are uh, either as we are in a rush to read about the fire and blood and apocalyptic-like events found later in the book, or we read it and it seems confusing, so we continue, so we press on in hope to find answers later. But this uh, must not be glanced over, for this scroll holds great significance to what the passage is explaining to the church of John's day and thus to us today. First key to understanding this passage is the right hand. The Lord holds this scroll in his right hand, displaying it not only as his word, his plan, his will, but also as a sign of his authority. That the word of this scroll were not, that the words of this scroll were not given or were given by the providential authority of God. We see that the scroll is written on, within, and on the back. 
When we look to other scripture like Ezekiel 2.9, Isaiah 29.11, or Daniel 12.4, we see this common pattern of these scrolls that are written on within and on the back as being the words of God declared to his people uh, that they may know his will and plan. These scrolls signify the unchanging, unnegotiable will of God. It's like this. When you want some, I don't know, let's say remodeling done on your home, what do you ask the contractor before he, before he starts? A contract. You want a written contract that details exactly what the contractor is supposed to do and how long it will take. When you put these words on a piece of paper and sign it, it is assurance to you that what has been written down and agreed upon will be fulfilled before the job is done. Well, although we are not negotiating with God, and how we, uh, with God and how he chooses to redeem his people, we have been assured that it is written out. It has been thought through, written down, and solidified by the faithful authority of God. There are no take-backs, there are no gotchas, no dipping out before the job is complete, no sneaky fine print, no, only a promise. A promise that says, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight, A promise that says no one can come to the Father except through me. John fourteen six, A promise that says all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will, buy, I will never cast out. John six thirty seven. You see, the words of this scroll are so significant because they are the absolute unchanging will of the Father. His promise and his command to his people. And finally, the seven seals. When you get some time after this message, I encourage you to take another look at Revelation chapter 6. In, this, in chapter 6, the Lamb begins to open the seals. What happens and what are in them is a message for another day, but it boils down to this. It is the sovereign will of the Father. We see that all these seals are not opened at once, but open consecutively, as the Father sovereignly, piece by piece, unfolds his plan of redemptive, of redemptive history and will fulfill his plan of redemption to come. By this, we as believers have assurance that by the revelation of Jesus Christ given to us through John's letter, the Father has, is, and will fulfill his promises given to us on that unchanging, complete perfectly executed scroll of the Father. As John stands there contemplating the deep reality of this scroll, and he is interrupted again. But this time, not by another image only, but by a voice. A voice posing a question that I can imagine John had not yet considered before the gravity of this dreadful question sinks deep into John's conscience. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? You see, back in the Roman era of things, if the emperor was to write a letter of command to a Roman city or colony, only a certain trusted person of authority and worthiness within that region uh, was allowed to open the scroll. As anyone else who was not considered worthy to do so could and likely would tamper with the document for their own personal benefit and gain, thus corrupting the emperor's commands. The question being asked here is not merely who can open the scroll, it is who is worthy to open the scroll. 
Who is worthy to open, read, and fulfill the perfect command and will of this infinite, almighty God? The answer we find right in the text. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy to open the scroll and break its seal. You see, the Father has spent all of history since the garden revealing to mankind you cannot and are not worthy to be God. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see God giving us the law and showing us our sin and showing us that we are unworthy beings or that we are unworthy and what we're actually worthy of is the wrath of God. When the people see this, God gives them sacrifices. But the people keep on sitting and the sacrifices are not enough. Then the people rebelled and God gave them judges to help guide the people and correct the people. But the judges sinned and the judges failed. Then the people cry out to God saying, give us a king. He will keep us straight and show us what is right. But then the kings get greedy and fail to obey God. So then God sends prophets to the kings to keep the kings in line. And the people killed the prophets. Then Christ comes preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins and we kill the very Son of God on the cross. Now you may say, well, I have not rejected Christ. You reject Christ the day you were born and lived in your own sin and will continue to reject Christ and crucify Him in your own heart every day until you repent of your sin and turn to Him. You see, because even if I were to try and take this scroll and with all of my might, all of my strength, every bit of my faithfulness, my intellect, my wisdom, my love, whatever I have, I would fall infinitely short of completing the Father's will. In fact, not only would I fall infinitely short of fulfilling the will of the Father out of my own strength, I would not even begin to start. Romans chapter eleven thirty six tells us that from him and to him and through him are all things. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, I could not have perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father because I can do nothing on my own strength. Everything I do is a gift from God, not myself. I could not even breathe on account of my own power if God did not sustain my very existence to take that breath. Every breath is a gift. So how on earth could I possibly be worthy to fulfill the perfect will of the Father to save His people, this rebellious people? How could you be worthy to save these people? The truth is, I cannot. You cannot. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can. Realizing the reality of this great question Who is worthy? John writes, I began to weep loudly. This part part of this passage puzzled me for a while. I knew that John was weeping because no one was found worthy. And I knew it was significant that they put it in there that he was weeping. But I didn't understand exactly why or what about the unworthiness John was weeping about. I thought, what exactly is causing John to weep with such emotion and such an outburst here? Is it because of John's disappointment of the people's inability to open the scroll? Is it because John realizes his own frailty? Maybe in part. After reading this and praying and reading and praying, I finally, it finally hit me. The words of Proverbs thirteen twelve: 
hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's like this. A few weeks ago, I was uh, at work having a good old time when Natalie calls me on the phone and says, hey, the van brakes broke. So I run over to get them and I get her and Benaya home and I get the van home and I'm like, okay, well, we got this problem, got to get it figured out. So I take a look at the van, I look at a, take a look and see what broke, and I identify a few parts. I'm like, great. So I run upstairs, I order the parts. A few weeks go by for the parts to come in. They come in, and I'm excited to replace them. So I find some time after a day at work, and I was tired, but the excitement of getting the van fixed and, and getting it all put back together where we could use it again was far more than my tiredness, so I begin to get to work. And as I'm working, I start on one side of the van, replacing the brakes and all that stuff, and uh, all goes well. I had the whole thing done in like 15 or 20 minutes. It was great. I was really excited. I was like, good, this is going well. So I hurry up and get to the other side. I start taking it apart. Everything goes smoothly. But then as I try to put things back together, they're not fitting right. So I I work harder, and I, I try one way and another way and another way. And every time I try, I'm just getting more and more disappointed and frustrated that this thing is not working. So after about trying to jam and cram this thing for about an hour, Natalie comes downstairs and, and says, what's going on? Is How is it going? And at this point, I had realized that there was another broken part that would need to be replaced. So I would have to order. We'd have to wait another several weeks for the part to come in and have to work it out. And I was so angry. And so I walk upstairs and I sit down on the couch uh, with Natalie and I said, why am I so angry? I usually don't get that mad about stuff like this. And then sitting there, I realized what it was. It was that I had had hopes that the van would be fixed. I had hoped that after that night and the long day of work and fixing the van, I'd be able to get back in it and get back to regular life. But every time I tried, the disappointment hit and the disappointment hit and then my hopes were crushed. And because my hopes were crushed, I was very angry and very emotional about this. You see, when John is looking at everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth being found unworthy to fulfill the redemptive work of the Father for all his people, he begins to weep in hopelessness of his own souls and the souls of mankind. John sees the qualification of holiness required for redemption as he gazes upon the one seated on the throne. And he looks at himself and everyone else and everything created by God and sees no one and sees no hope of salvation. When John saw this magnificent sight in heaven, he realized the magnitude of the glory of God and thus the will of that God was far more than he could bear. And seeing this before his very eyes, he began to weep with the question, when the question was asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? I can imagine that when the question is asked, John immediately counts himself out, seeing the glory of the will giver on the throne in comparison to him. And he looks around, seeing, seeing if anyone's worthy. And when he's looking up to heaven, he sees no one. And when looking to earth, He sees no one, and when he looks under the earth, still no one is found. Each gaze bringing John to more and more despair as he contemplates what a holy God like that would do with an unholy people like us. So John weeps loudly. As John weeps, thinking all hope is lost, 
We cannot save ourselves. What can I do to save myself from a God like that? How can I even begin to count? How can I be, be, even begin or be counted righteous before an almighty God like that? How could I even stand before a God like that? As Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, I am undone. As John weeps aloud, he hears another voice. A voice of comfort. A voice of guidance. A voice of peace. A voice of an elder. Saying, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break its seal. What the elder is saying here is, look, it's the one who came to crush the head of the serpent prophesied in, from the beginning. It's the one who came to fulfill the law. He was the one, he was the perfect sacrifice. He is the righteous judge, the faithful king, the perfect prophet. It is the lamb, Jesus Christ, our savior. I believe this next part is more enriching if we just read it as it is. So if you would, with me, close your eyes for a moment and just think about the words that I'm about to say in this next part. Think about the one who is seated on the throne. Think about the scroll that is in his right hand, that is his, that is his will. Think about John and his great weeping and his feeling of despair because of his unworthiness. And the words of the elder that bring hope. And now the lamb, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb who appeared to have been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Just think about this scene, these words. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Do you see, when we truly see God for who He is, we will understand we are not enough. We have sinned against the Holy God. We have rebelled against our very Creator. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 puts it plainly. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And by nature were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, when I heard that song for the first time, Is he worthy? It broke me to my core. Like John, I stood there singing the song saying, Who is worthy? Who is worthy? I stood there thinking about my unworthiness, only I was not weeping because of my despair. But tears began to run down my face as I realized, He is worthy. 
My heart and soul were overwhelmed by the love of the Father and the willingness of the Son. That seeing my, me unworthy, He sent His own Son to die on a cross that at the hands of unworthy men, we would live. So when I stand here this morning, seeing the Lamb who was slain, I weep tears of joy that it's Him. That's my Savior. That's my God. I stand here at this pulpit today because by the grace of my loving Father, I believed in Christ and His saving work that He has done that I read about in this book. I've been completely convinced that I was born into sin and hated by God and was His enemy. And as a result, I was deserving of His wrath. But by His grace, Christ being fully man and fully God, perfect and righteous in every way, came and died on a cross. He took the full wrath of God that I deserved, that you deserved. And in three days, He rose again and ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. To do what? To save us. To save me. To save you. Oh, my prayer is that we would understand the love of the Father. And as believers, as believers, we would, we would be consumed with this thought. Out of great love and mercy, He has saved us. He is still saving us. And as long as He has not returned, there are still those that remain to be saved. So I ask this morning, is that you? Are you tired of carrying your own burden, your own hope? Have you had enough of yourself, your own self-righteousness, your own all-figure-it-outness? Have you seen your own unworthiness for the last time and have come to this place seeking answers? Or maybe you have heard and maybe you, ha- and maybe you have been running. Well, let me tell you, sinner, and let me tell you, runner, run no more. Come to Christ and He will give you rest for your soul and peace with that God who sits on that throne and those of you who believe when the struggle of life comes when the pains of persecution or the grief of loss or your own sin weigh you down keep your eyes on the lamb keep your eyes on christ for he has overcome the world remember the joy of our salvation and the hope we have in christ The hope that no matter the struggle, the pain of this life, nothing compares to what we have in eternity with the Father and the Son. For when we find our hope and our joy in Christ, we too will sing the songs of heaven that we read about in this very chapter. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And again, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let me ask you, church, is that your song? Is that what you sing? Is that what we sing when we gather here and we worship this morning? Is that what we sing when the hard times come throughout the week? Is that what we sing when the blessings come throughout the week? For this is our peace, our joy, and our hope. That when we are weighed down by our own sin, pain, or suffering, always remember this. He is worthy.
So if you stand with me this morning, put you in, if you would raise your arms and receive position, I'd like to leave you with a benediction for the words uh, of Paul in Romans 15, 13 this morning. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you. God, may God bless you richly. And you are dismissed.